You guys can go ahead and be seated. Today we are kicking off a series called The Characters of Christmas. And I'm guessing one of you guys will know this. I can't remember this, but um, someone will help me out. In the Rudolph story, does anyone remember the name of the elf that wanted to be a dentist? You guys remember that? Is, Is that what it is? Okay, but most of you guys are familiar. It's the old school Rudolph. You've got to know that. Um, my, my concern is that it, it's easy to go through this season and to know a lot about very random and obscure characters from Christmas stories, but to not know all of the stories of the people who are actually in the Christmas story. And I, I can tell you, I have four kids, so I have watched those shows over and over, and I know most of the names. And like I said, I can tell you a little bit about an elf that wants to be a dentist one day. I can tell you about Frosty the Snowman, but I want to make sure the thing that we're most passionate about Christmas time is what Christmas is really all about, the birth of our Savior. And so we're going to die, and I, I, warning, sorry, I have to step outside of my sermon for a minute. I'm a pastor And I apologize, I will nerd out about some Bible stuff, and I'm going to maybe take this into some deeper corners, but I really think it's interesting, and I think it's valuable to have a good grip on the passage and what some of this means. But today, as we get into our passage, like, after I wrote this message, it's like, this message probably should have been four messages, and so I'm going to really try to work through it as we go, but we might end up with a part two of this later. Um, But as we get started, I want to invite you to remember some things about yourself. Can you think of a time where you knew this was the standard that I should hold and you completely missed that standard? Now, I know it's not, it's not cheery and bright to think about your own hypocrisy, but, we pro- but I know that in this room we have more six-packs in the fridge than we have six-packs under our shirt, and Thanksgiving is probably a really good standard when we think about the standard I should hold of how much I ate and how much I actually ate we all can call to memories where we missed the mark, where we said to ourselves, I'm really going to stick with a diet. I've been great for 10 days, and then we go on a sugar and carb binge, right? Like we've been there. We've said to ourselves, when we get home, I am not going to lose it on my kids when they have not done the chores that I told them to do. And then we get home, and not only have they not done the chores, they've undone the chores that you have done, and then you come undone. When you told yourself you wouldn't, like we all know, we have an internal standard that we often miss within ourselves, even though we knew better, even though we committed to something higher, we've missed the mark. And at the beginning of the the Christmas story, really, in the Gospel of Luke, we get a picture of someone who was a really good man. Like he is someone, he follows God, he follows the commandments. And he has this amazing opportunity, and he just misses the standard that he would have expected out of himself. And it's a really interesting story with a lot of intricacies to it that I want to look together with you. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 today. And we're going to start at verse 5, and we'll put this up on the screen, but you can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 if you have it with you. Starting at verse 5. And it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division 
was on duty. He was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. I'm gonna pause there as we're working through this passage because there's a lot to that. First of all, I want you to see Zechariah. His name, his name simply means Yahweh or Jehovah remembered. Some translators say it actually means to remember again. And this is a really interesting name as you go through the passage because it states that he was old and that he was childless. And it appears as we work through this passage today that you're going to see it was very close to their heart, the the concept of having a child. And for someone in this time, you need need to see that the the biggest sign of God's blessing on, on your life were your heirs. That if you were a good man, it was expected that you would have many sons and many children and many heirs. And for them to not have this, there would have been a hole in their heart. Society would have looked at them with a little bit of a tilted head of it just doesn't seem to line up that you follow God, yet you have no children. And his name means God remembers. And the prayer that they pray over God, would you give us a child? God, would you give us an heir? It's just an interesting echo that that walks alongside that prayer that God remembers. God hasn't forgotten. God remembers. I mean, it's right there in his name. And, And him and his wife, Elizabeth, they were both people that if anyone deserved to get good things from God, it was them. They both came from great lines within the kingdom. Elizabeth was the, was the daughter of a priest. She came from a good family. She was a preacher's kid. And she did not lose her mind. Like, she was a good girl. She deserved to have kids. And he worked in the priestly order. And, and, it, and, it, and it describes some things that kind of shoot past our head because like their, their righteousness, like, he, he was someone who his life was spent almost like a pastor, but I mean, he was working in the temple. He was working with the sacrifices. He would travel to Jerusalem twice a year from their home country to work within the temple. And that's actually what we see that's gonna be happening when it says that his division was called to work. That means he had to leave home for about a week's time and go to the temple in Jerusalem. And so they, they were this righteous family. And I, I want to make sure that we stop within that because some of you guys will begin to write an excuse check for yourself. It says, well, of course, you know, they, they, they can do things for God because they're righteous and they follow all the commandments and I, I messed up and so I can never live righteously. It, it's not saying that they were perfect. There's only one Jesus in scripture. There's only one person who was ever sinless. There's only one person who ever did it right. And it, when it says that they were blameless and they followed the commands, it's talking about intention. Like, I, I'd compare this, I enjoy, well, first of all, let's do this. How many of you guys have coached youth sports before? Okay. And how many of you guys enjoyed it? <laughs> There's a lot less hands on the second one. And I get that, because it's challenging to herd these little group of squirrels around and try to get them to do something. And there is such, I mean, like, as I coach soccer, there are some kids that it's like, you are the offspring of Pele. Like, you are one of, like, it is ridiculous how good at soccer you are for your age. And there are some kids that it's just like, I, I'm surprised you can walk. Like, you are so unathletic. But as a coach, my thing for them is I'm not like, hey, you kid who can barely walk, you need to play like mini Pele over here. That's not how it works. Like the thing that I look for as a coach is like, and you'll hear me, some of you in the room have had kids on my soccer teams before, and you hear me shout this over and over. It's like, show me your best. 
Like, I know you can run faster than that. Give me your best out there. And, and that's what I look for as a coach. And I want to tell you, your heavenly father, he knows you better than anyone. And he can look into a life. This is important. You need to have a grasp on this. He can look into your life and into your heart, and he is a perfect judge. He's the type of judge that you don't even try to argue with because you are already convinced you know that he knows. And God looks into your life, and he can tell whether or not you are giving your all. One of the most consistent things about people is that we are inconsistent, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will not be perfect on this earth, but your heavenly father is a perfect judge who knows, are you trying? Are you pouring out your best for the kingdom of God in the way that you live? And when God looked down at Elizabeth and Zechariah, he said, those are two, two people who are doing their best. They're doing their best to follow the commands. And it's obvious that Zechariah isn't perfect because as we get into this passage, you're going to see, I mean, he's known like through history as someone who made a mistake because of this. It's a really cool interaction that, that he gets to have with an angel that we'll see. But I want you to first have the background. He was, he, they were a couple that tried really hard. They, they lived as righteously as they could. The people around them would have looked at them and said, why don't you have the blessing of children? You do so much for other people. You do so much for the temple. You're such good people. Why don't you have it? And so that, he had lived his life. They had grown very old, the passage says. And then it says his division was on duty. Uh, there's 24 divisions of priesthood. And I know I'm nerding out into details here, but just go with me, okay? There's 24 divisions of priesthood. There's about 14,000 priests throughout the kingdom right now. And each division would have two weeks per year, six months apart, one week and then one week. So for two weeks out of the year, whatever division you were in, you would go to Jerusalem. And so that means that in your life, you, you didn't have that many opportunities because it says they, they, they drew who would go in and perform this rite in, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place within the temple. And you only had a few opportunities. Most priests would live and they'd never get to go and burn incense on the altar of incense in the temple. And so first of all, he's lived 60 years and when, when a priest gets selected to do that, they never get to do it again in their life. And he had lived a long time. We don't know exactly how long, but over 60 years is the expectation. He's lived and he never got this honor of burning incense on the altar of incense. And he goes and he gets picked by lice. Kind of, by lice, that's a great quote. By dice, he gets picked by rolling, kind of like rolling dice, by lot is the, the, illust the comparison we'd use for our day. And, and so he got chosen by lot. God picked him to be here in this situation and he got to go into the holy place. Now, as we describe the holy place, I know we just think, okay, holiness. Well, th th this is kind of what it looked like. When you came in, there would be the altar of incense in front of you and everything in here was, was, was covered with gold. And on the altar of incense, there would be a place uh, for the coals where the incense would be laid, where they would burn. On the, on the left, there, there would be uh, about a five foot, three, five foot three candle stand with seven, um, seven different lamps on it. We, we say candles, but it was actually like oil-based candles. And that's the menorah that you guys have seen, seen other places. And, and on the right, it would be the table of showbread. 
Now, once again, I understand I'm, I'm nerding out a little bit as a pastor, but the, the light that was there in this Holy of Holies, it was, it was powered by oil, and there's all of this symbolism that Jesus is the light of the world. And when people thought of the temple and they thought about the light of the world, they would have thought about the menorah that lit up the holy place. When Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, I am, I, I, when he compared himself to manna, he, people would have thought of the showbread in the holy place. And when Jesus says that, that our prayers, that the things that we ask that in his name, it would have been compared to the altar of incense because the altar of incense was symbolistic of the prayers of God's people rising up to him. There's so much symbolism in this place that, that it, I understand it's not may, maybe life transformed, but it's so important to understand that Zechariah, who, who had this heart cry to have a child, this prayer that they prayed over and over, and the time passed from their childbearing years where they would have almost just given up on that prayer. His name, Zechariah, means God remembered. And he's entering into this place where he's going to burn the incense that symbolized God's people praying and those prayers going up to heaven. And there, there very easily could have been a sense of, of bitterness in him. That said, who am I to come in here and put the prayers of God's people here when God has never answered the most important prayer to my heart? I think it's important to have a foundation of understanding who Zechariah was before you get to the miracle that he experiences. Because in a sermon to hear, it's been 60 years that we've been praying this prayer. That's easy to hear, but can you just put yourself into the situation of waiting for 60 years? And the answer never coming the way you want it to come. And you put the incense on the altar and you're like, this is God's prayers going to heaven, but my prayer has been unheard. Going on to verse 11. It says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, first of all, he's in there and he's doing the duties and he, and he puts the, the incense on the altar and the smoke is rising and the people are outside praying and an angel appears beside the altar and this is where he gets terrified and pretty rightfully so. As we prepare for the Christmas story, it's impossible, like so much there's this mixing of Christianity with what's acceptable in the culture that almost removes miracles. It removes the spiritual. It removes absolute truth. But I want to tell you, you can't get through Christmas without the reality that there's more to the world than just what you can see. 
There, there is a spiritual dynamic to the world around us. And the Christmas story is clear that God uses angelic beings to move throughout the world and move his will around. And I understand that can get strange and, and that, that, that can get almost abused in some settings where everything is some sort of angel or demon's fault. We don't see in scripture people who had daily interactions with the angelic, but it happens throughout history. And there's a spiritual component to who you are as well that holds value. You are created in the image of God and you have a spiritual part of you that will live eternally. And the truth of your spirit and the truth that there are angels within the world are things that are clearly demonstrated in this story. And one of the interesting things that we see in any interaction with any angel throughout scripture is most people's response to an angel is terror. I mean, we, we, we create, you know, little flappy winged things that are like cute and we hang them on our Christmas tree. But the response that most persons sees when they see an angel is terror. Why is that? Well, first of all, I think, you know, they, they don't send warning signs usually. And so that's, that's not fair for someone to just jump out at you like that. You're going to get scared. That's part of it. Second, there's this, I, th- I believe that there's this moment, if you were to see an angel, it would almost be like, I, I like scuba diving and I like going under the water and people who are not scuba divers are like, Paul, do you know that there are sharks underwater? And yes, I know that. They're like, do you know that they could eat you? And I'm like, yes, I know that too, but they typically don't, um, which is not really alleviating to them. But there is a reality that even like I've, I've, scuba, I've been around sharks before. I, I've been spearfishing and saw sharks. And I, I know like they get active in those situations. And there's a feeling when you see a shark underwater that you're like, I cannot win this fight. Like if it wanted to fight, I cannot win. And I believe part of the terror of seeing an angel is just a recognition of like, there's no way to choke you out. Like, <laughs> like I could not land a punch. Like, I, I don't even know if I can touch you, but it seems obvious that you're bigger and stronger. Like, I think there's part of that, that our nature says, like, there's, there's no way that I could win this. I think there's another part of our nature that if you were ever to see an angel, you would at least temporarily be completely convinced that, okay, there is a God and it's not me. <laughs> And the way that I live is going to be under scrutiny and judgment one day and my decisions matter. And I think all of that weight would probably fall on your shoulders at the same time that you would ever see anything like that. But I'll also tell you this, that people talk themselves out of the miracles that they see given time. That's why I say it's temporary. I've seen God work miracles in people's lives and months later they convince themselves that something else happened. Seeing an angel would never solve your faith crisis because in scripture we see people stray away even in this circumstance where Zechariah sees the angel and he's terrified. He has problems believing what the angel has to say. But before we dive too much into the struggle that Zechariah has with that, I just wanna, I want you to notice the, the ordering that happens in verse 13. He says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Before he even says what his prayer was. Which to me is just further evidence. The ordering of scripture is always intentional in the way that it says things. And when he says your prayer has been heard, Zechariah knew what prayer he was talking about. There's part of his heart that would have resounded, but, but he went on and he said, your wife, will have a child that will be a joy to you, be a delight to you. Your prayer has been heard. As we progress into this passage, I wanna begin to wake up in some of you a prayer that you felt like has been dead. 
something that you feel like has been hopeless, something that you once prayed about daily but you've given up on because you just feel like it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. One of the things that we're gonna see from this passage is is that there is an appointed time for things and unfortunately we don't get to appoint that time. But if there's a dream that has been in your heart, a need that has been there, and because the answer hasn't arrived yet or arrived in the way that you wanted it to arrive, you've given up on it, I believe one of the, the main takeaways from this passage is that there are prayers that are answered in heaven before they're answered on earth. Because even at the speaking of this, there was no child yet. As Gabriel, the angel, was speaking to Zechariah, he says, your prayer has been heard. But, but there's no child yet. And so things begin to move in heaven before they move on earth. And so do not, because you don't see it yet here, expect that the answer is just a no. Jesus tells us one of the ways that we should pray is like someone who seeks justice. He compares it to a widow who is dealing with a judge who doesn't care about justice. And Jesus says, keep pleading, keep making your cry for it. Because even a widow who goes after this judge who doesn't fear God, eventually the judge will give her justice just to get her off of his back. How much more will your father in heaven, your father who is good, who loves you, answer the prayers of those who ask? We don't see in scripture a teaching that prayers get answered quickly and that we get to demand what we want, but if we ask things according to his will, he will act. And I believe that God puts things in our heart and he puts dreams in our heart and he wants us to pursue them. He wants us to ask. He wants us to continue to seek because there's just this truth that in, in scripture and in my life experience, I've seen that God loves to answer prayers when we finally recognize if this happens, it's only because of God's hands. And in this story, this is definitely one of those cases that the desire to have a child that was in Zechariah and Elizabeth, it got answered when it was completely out of their hands to bring it to fulfillment. And there's a couple other pastor things I have to nerd out about in, the, in this passage. In verse 17, it says, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And for most of us, that goes right over our head. But I have to bring you to this. There, there was a 400-year gap of silence from the last prophet, the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can flip to the very last sentence of the Old Testament. And the sentence you read will be the sentence that is written here because what Gabriel is doing is he's saying, the silence here is over. Like God is beginning to speak again and it's gonna start with John. John is the one who's gonna prepare the way for the Savior and it's this incredibly beautiful connection that he makes to the Old Testament. And so here's the Old Testament and all the acts of God and the things that he did from you know Genesis through Malachi and then there was this period of silence and then he says, here is the fulfillment of what was spoken about in Malachi. In the spirit and the power of Elijah, he's gonna turn the hearts of the parents to their children. 400 years of silence. That is like dialing back to 1622. We don't, you probably don't remember too many things that happened in 1622. I had to look at least one up for example's sake, the massacre at Jamestown. Maybe you remember that from history. But most of us can't even imagine, okay, what was going on 400 years ago? Life has changed a lot in 400 years here in the United States, hasn't it? Because the United States didn't even exist 400 years ago. 
And there's this period of 400 years of silence and Gabriel makes this connection and that silence is over. God is fulfilling his promises. Starting in the conversation with Zechariah, which once again, his name means God has remembered. Going on to verse 18, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of, he got a little huffy here, didn't he? I mean, he got questioned, and he's like, is an angelic vision not enough of a sign for you? You need more than this? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, about a week, he returned home. After this, his his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. For time's sake, I'm gonna trim some of this. But I, I wanna first start in the place of Gabriel got a little bit huffy uh, with the, the statement of question. And I can't talk too much for Gabriel's motives, but I can tell you this, the more time that you spend in the, premise, in, in the presence of God, the more you just absolutely trust the promises of God. Like the more time that you spend with him, the more his character is just on full display within your your sight. You recognize that if God says something, it is done. Like when he speaks it, it will happen. And when God says a prayer will be answered, like it is answered. And for someone like Gabriel who sat in the very presence of God, who stands in the presence of God, who has seen God work time and time again, for God to say, this will happen, and someone to say, how can I be sure? Can you do a little parlor trick for me to like convince me, like give me an additional sign? Like Gabriel was like, you don't get it, so you know, here is your sign, stupid. Until what God has said will happen, there will be silence. And it's this interesting dynamic between the silence of the 400 years where, where God's promises were, were, were getting ready to be birthed in Jesus Christ to where John, the one who would make the way for Jesus, his father was silent as, these, as this promise was prepared. And it's this interesting shadowing that happens within here. And so when he leaves, he's having to try to figure out sign language, which, you know, how, how do you use your hands to communicate an angel? Like, I, I don't even know. How do, you, how do you use your hands when you get home to, like, persuade your wife, like, hey, I know we're past childbearing years, but there's a promise of a child. Like, turn on the Marvin Gaye. Like, like let, let's, let's make it happen. To, like, light the candles. No, no pickup lines. It's, it's, it's an interesting story for a lot of reasons. He, and he had that week before he even got home where he, he just had to sit and think about these promises and, and he couldn't even explain them to his wife. And so I don't know if it completely caught her as a surprise when she recognized 
that there was a fluttering. There's a child. Oh man, I can't, I can't even imagine the emotions that would begin to well up in a woman who spent her years just praying and dreaming. Giving up on the dream. And then all of a sudden God does something. And you get this incredibly special child. It didn't happen on their time. The promise that God will answer, it's connected to are these things that are according to his will? Are they the things that God wants for you? And if there has been something that's on your heart, I just want to reinforce this. Like there's a difference between I want a Ferrari and I want reconciliation with this person. There's a difference between I want to make a lot of money and I want to be able to be generous and care for those who have needs. There's a difference between I want a position of power and I want to do something with my life that will impact other people. There's differences in those things and some people will spend their whole life chasing a dream that is not God's dream for them. But when you identify this is what God wants for you, even if it hasn't happened on your appointed time, you have to keep going after it. Band, you guys can come out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a way to wrap this up. Luke chapter one, verse 57. Um, put this up on the screen as we, as we finish our, our passage for today. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. So the friends are all excited. The baby shower is happening. People are excited. The baby is born. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. So the friends were gonna pick the name. Like the friends were insisting, like this is the child of your old age. It, it was an honorable thing to be named after your father. They were trying to name the child Zechariah. But his mother, verse 60, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who have that, has that name. Then they made signs to his father. He wasn't deaf, he just couldn't speak, but they apparently thought they needed to write back to him. Um, they made signs to his father to find out what he would like him to name, what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judah, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. You know, even when God begins to answer a prayer, something that was close to your heart, there, there's this opportunity that you have to take what God has done and ascribe the glory to yourself. To say, to take something that God's name and God's power and God's hand has been all over and then redirect it and say, this is mine. And this was, this was that opportunity that could have happened. There was social pressure there. Um, and, you know, if Zechariah had written Zechariah, he probably would have been mute till the day that he died. And the, you know, my heartbeat is one A, like I want 
you to know the story of Christmas in its fullness. Like Zechariah is the beginning of making the way for the birth of the Savior. But two, Zechariah is a great example of a person who, he should have done better in the presence of an angel. He was a priest after all. He was a righteous man after all. He should have believed God after all. He struggled. And that should encourage your heart that if you've struggled, you're not alone. All the people throughout scripture struggled. Even Jesus was faced with times of anxiety in the garden where the weight was was unbearable on his soul. Struggling is part of life. Being inconsistent at times, it's part of being a human. But we are called through the struggle to continue to pursue what God has for us. And when it finally arrives, to give the glory, give the honor to God. This child's name was John, not named after Zechariah, but he was named in accordance with what God had spoken with what God wanted to do. And so when through your inconsistency, you finally find that win, you find that moment where things come together, you find that moment where you, you, you get the promotion, where you wear the size six, where, where you bake it exactly the way you wanted to bake it, where your kids actually do what they want to do, that is the time for you to glorify God. When God answers that prayer, brings that dream, don't forget to give the glory back to him. It means something. And John, everyone was watching, the people around, they were watching how he was going to grow up. And John's message was a message of repentance, which I think is so fitting with the story of a father who made a mistake but then got on the right track. And John's message was repent and be baptized for the kingdom is it near. And Jesus' message that was built upon that was believe in the Messiah. Place your faith, place your hope. Repent, for today is the day of salvation. And the way that we get to the cross, the way that we get to the message of the gospel, it starts with the one who prepared the way. So when it's felt like there is no way, know that God will make a way. When it's felt like the dream is impossible now, nothing is impossible for God. When it feels like it didn't happen in your timing, it doesn't have to happen in your timing. It will happen in God's timing. Let's continue to pursue what God has for us. Let's put it together. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, encourage our heart as we prepare for Christmas. Encourage our mind and our spirit and help us to celebrate not just the symbols of Christmas, but what they stand for. But then activity leads us to the cross. And the cross leads us to the resurrection. And so we are so grateful for the new life that we find in you, Jesus. Continue to wake up in us the dreams and the callings that you've placed in us. And give us the faith to believe. Not the faith that needs the sign, but the faith that only needs to hear your word. It's in your son's name we pray.